Welcome to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. Today on 30 Minutes, we're going to continue with remarks made at a November 2017 event entitled Tucson Makers, Inspired by Women, presented by AIGA Arizona. Throughout today's program, we'll hear from three speakers who described how their creative work is intertwined with catalyzing change. Up first, we'll hear from AIGA board member and graphic designer Julie Ray with information about AIGA. KXCI Executive Director Kathy Rivers was the MC at the event and introduced Leanne Hernandez, Community Life Director for YWCA Southern Arizona. This is part two of a two-part series. Welcome to our Tucson Makers event. This is the sixth year that we're doing this, and the purpose is to gather our community together. It's also a fundraiser for AIGA Arizona. What is AIGA Arizona? Well, we are a statewide chapter of a national organization, which is the Professional Association for Design. We are one of over 70 chapters and 25,000 members across the country. And what we do is we advance design as a professional craft, strategic advantage, and vital cultural force. Leon Hernandez is the Community Life Director of the YWCA's Southern Arizona in Tucson, Arizona. She works to create space for individuals and organizations to do the work of community building. Trained as an art historian, a chef, an anthropologist, she is a student of the questions of what is community, who gets to participate, and how. Welcome, Leon Hernandez. How's everybody doing? Thank you all so much for being out here. I arrived in uh, Tucson, Arizona in 1990. I was a 17-year-old kid who had just graduated from high school. And um, it was in Tucson that I really found my people. You know, Kylie talked about finding your tribe, and I think that that is something that definitely happened. Tucson has been a really important character in my life. And uh, it is where I was able to find people that desperately wanted to manifest love in public. And uh, so, you know, Brother Cornell calls that justice. And I have always been able to find people who desperately wanted to find justice for themselves and for others. And so when I was uh, still 17, I, I met some friends and we started having organizational meetings in our, our the big brown house over on First and First when we moved out of the dorms at um, Manzanita Mojave. So there was eight of us living in this house. And so together we started thinking about, you know, how could we start to make change in 1990? It was the first Gulf War. And I started to attend my first protests in the streets. and. Um, and we did a lot of our organizing around the dinner table. And I started to recognize how important food was. Kathy mentioned that um, I'm trained as a chef and I had the great uh, fortune to work in that field for a very long time. One of the first concepts that you learn in a good kitchen, in a proper kitchen, is the idea of mise en place, things in place. And so that's the idea of you drawing things together, drawing together all of your components so that when the time comes to execute, you can just stand there and do what you're, do your job. You're not running around like a chicken with your head cut off. And um, this concept has been one that has served me very well over the years. I still run around like a chicken with my head, out, head cut off. Don't, 
think I don't. If anybody goes to the, the day before Tucson Meet Yourself starts, you'll see me probably completely freaked out running around like a chicken with my head cut off. But this idea of mise en place is one that is very important. I then was able to um, attend the University of Arizona. I studied art history and anthropology, cultural anthropology and folklore. And I met some folks in Chicano studies. And we started to think about the idea of what does the Chicano art movement look like in 1995? You know, so 20 years after the movement, right? Uh, and um, Tucson has been a very lucky place for me. Because in asking that question, when I was able to find a gallery, I fell into a gallery space. Jose Galvez opened up a Chicano art gallery, and I was allowed by some, I, I don't know, stroke of luck, I don't even know, to assemble 25 exhibitions over two years in that space. And so being able to meet Chicano artists from across the country and do calls you know, because I was curious. I had to be curious about something. What does is, what is the AIDS epidemic look like in the Chicano community? That manifested in something that was called Mujeres y el Sida. And, you know, and so being able to assemble these nationally renowned Chicana artists who trusted me with their work to put it up in the, on the walls of this small space in Tucson, Arizona, it was a magical space. And um, one of the shows that we created, and I, my comadre and, and I, um, Rita Prado, we were in grad school together in art history. And our friends were tremendous Chicano artists. And so we wondered what it would be like to have a show. And we called it Seis Raices Nuevas. And out of that show emerged a new art space called Raices. And if you go down the street, it's two blocks away, and they're celebrating their 20th anniversary today. <clears throat> Some of my greatest inspiration has always come from my friends. I have been blessed with some of the most tremendous friends that I have found here. Many of you are in this room, and I thank you. I'm a little unsettled right now, honestly, because I, I went to Raices just before coming here, and um, my friend Sochi's picture is, on, is part of the altar. She passed in April. She and I, and some of our friends, started that space. And it's just amazing to know that it has endured. And it has gone on without us, you know, sometimes in spite of us, I think. But I think that that's the magic also of this place we call Tucson, is that if you want something, you have to create it, right? I think we witnessed that with a lot of the people in the room. So that kind of audacious moment of being able to say with my friends, hey, we have this extra money, somebody has a studio, let's use their space and we'll build this like art, you don't know art experiment and community building. And so it's not just your studio, let's make a, let's make a space where we can do talleres and we can make art, you know, create art together. And so we did. And that was a really fundamental point in my um, development as, a, as an organizer, I think. Um, because we were able to talk about all of the ideas that were salient and important to our lives vis-a-vis -vis the art. And it wasn't just art on the walls, it was the art of creation, this, uh, the idea of telling the story that was hanging on the walls. That, were, that was so important, right? Because those are the people that you love the most, your friends. And so you want to, you know, that was my job, to tell the story of the art on the walls. And um, it was an honor to be able to do that for, for many years. So flash forward, and food has always been something that I've been incredibly passionate about. And I had the tremendous 
um, luck, again, I think, of encountering a friend in Paris who had gone to Cordon Bleu. And she inspired me to not be afraid to leave the arts to pursue my passion of, of cooking. And so I did. And um, cooking in Tucson was something that was very interesting. You know, I started at Bentley's. My Bentley's was my first cooking job when I was 18. I used to ride my bike to cook downtown at what I guess became Double Zero. I mean, I don't know. I can't even tell. It does, it's unrecognizable to me now downtown, so it kind of weirds me out. But yeah, so I was able to cook for a very long time, and so this concept of mise en place is one that, that continued. And as I got older in the profession, I don't know how many of you have all, how many of you have cooked before? There's not a lot of women who get paid to cook. And when you do, it's really hard. I had the incredible advantage. I was educated. I was older when I went into the field, and I'm six feet one. And as a matter of fact, I don't take any shit in the kitchen, excuse me. <laughs> so I had this advantage, but I didn't see that in a lot of the women that I was working with. And so a lot of the women that I worked with didn't make it to chef. I did, you know? So I thought, what would be my legacy if this is the gift that I have? And so um, my dream was to develop a cafe where I could train girls to do what I did and to have the confidence to be able to do it and get paid for it. And so that experiment, oh, thanks. <laughs> that experiment became um, the cafe at the YWCA. And so it was, it was a real blessing to be able to have that space and that encouragement from my fellow staff members that um, it wasn't a crazy idea to put a cafe in the middle of a building that is on the west side that nobody knew about. It was a challenge, though. <laughs> And so, you know, we plugged along, and I got to do a lot of really incredible work with people um, to not just teach them culinary skills, because that, my, my old chef told me, you can teach anybody to cook. You can't teach them not to be an owl. So being able to operate that space within the YWCA, which is, you know, a space that, whose mission is to eliminate racism and empower women and to promote peace, justice, freedom, and dignity for all, to be able to do that in that space was a magical experience. And I got to do it for three and a half years. Now that project is, has been transformed into what is called Torazon Cafe. And I have moved on to a different aspect of that work, which is advocacy. And so now me and my team, we are called the Stand Together Arizona Training and Advocacy Center. And we do community building. And we do political organizing. And we create space for folks. And we share our the resources that we have by allowing folks to use our space and, and organizing alongside of them. But also recognizing that we have a lot of privilege as an organization that has 100 years operating in this community. And so when folks need voice, we try to support and we try to you know, articulate as we can. And right now we're working on a project called Operation Haboob, which is about imagining together what would it take to make Arizona a place where everyone could thrive? And we are asking that question around the state. And we'll assemble those ideas into something called the people-powered agenda. And in that way, try to make the state, co-create a future for the state that we all deserve. So Tucson has been a place of incredible joy, um, some loss, but a lot of co-creation. And so I thank you for being here. You are listening to remarks made at a November 2017 event entitled Tucson Makers, Inspired by Women, 
presented by AIGA Arizona on 30 Minutes, 91.3 KXCI Tucson. That was Leanne Hernandez, Community Life Director for YWCA Southern Arizona. Up next, KXCI Executive Director and event MC Kathy Rivers will introduce Debbie Chess Maybe. Debbie Chess Maybe, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Debbie has over 25 years of nonprofit program development and leadership experience in a variety of sectors, including youth and community development and arts based economic development. Debbie will be starting a new venture in helping to lead the Dunbar Pavilion, an African-American center for art and culture, into its next 100 years of cultural significance in our community. She is the chair and founding member of the Tucson Black Film Club, a board member of Arizona Citizen for the Arts, and the Nonprofit Loan Fund. Off script, I really want to encourage you to connect with Debbie and get a tour of Dunbar. It was, we had an opportunity to go there. I'd never been inside. I'd always seen the building uh, living around Tucson, and I know she's going to do incredible things uh, for this community and for that community and for that wonderful building. So Debbie Chess, maybe, ladies and gentlemen. Good evening. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm in this transition, which is really kind of bizarre because on Tuesday, I was the executive director of the Arts Foundation, of which some of you knew as TPAC. And then on Wednesday, I'm in a whole nother space and reality at uh, the Dunbar Center, but it's all really cool. And I'm so impressed by everyone that has gone before me. And, you know, when I started putting this together, I thought about, you know, um, what happens to an experience when you put a frame around it? And so when I was nine years old, there was nobody cooler or hipper or just plain doper than my older brother. He had the coolest friends, he listened to the coolest music, but most of all, he thought I was pretty dope too. And I went everywhere with him. So when I was 11, my brother had a party at our house. Um, and now we lived in a predominantly white suburban neighborhood in Fairborn, Ohio. This was the mid-70s, and my brother was in high school. There were just a minusculely small number of black people in that school. So he has this party, and I, like every other little sister who was relegated to their room when, you know, grown folk business takes place, I took to the top of the stairs to peek out and watch what was going on because that's what little sisters do. Um, you know, come on now, I wasn't going to miss this, this party, miss what's going on to save my life. So everyone comes to this party, like the two black kids and, you know, the 800 white kids and... <laughs> And the Asian kids, you know, the one and a half Asian kid. And, and so they're all here at our house. And so um, what happens is, what happens at all adolescent parties, right? Segregation. But not segregation by race. Segregation by sex. The girls on one side of the room, the boys on the other side of the room, all looking at each other awkward. You know, and I'm only 11 years old. I'm like, you guys are supposed to like... Stuff happens, right? You know, like your teenagers, you have hormones and everything. Like, let's see what's going on here. So, you know, they, they're just standing around looking at each other, and the coolest music is playing, like, you know, Freak Out by Chic, and, you know, 
all that stuff. And so what's happening? And all of a sudden, cue music, cue music. The Brothers Johnson, Strawberry Letter 23 comes on. You know how that goes. Do, 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 right? And so one white kid gets in the middle of the floor and he knows every word to this song. He starts getting down, he's doing his thing, and all of a sudden, like every other kid starts getting out and singing along with them and doing their thing and doing their little get down. And it was right then, right there, that I understood the power of art. I saw the power of art to bridge, to pull down barriers, to connect people, and I decided right then and there, I wanted to be a part of that, that thing. It wasn't dance, it wasn't music, it was that thing that dance and music did. Now, I don't have a talented bone in my body in terms of dance, <laughs> and I surely can't sing. You heard me try to do that do-do-do-do thing, right? So anyway, I knew I wanted to be a part of that, right? So fast forward. Fast forward to um, a lot of experiences. Fast forward through high school and, and college and Peace Corps. I joined the Peace Corps as well. I found myself as a documentary photographer. And I was photographing medical missions in Guatemala and China. Now, I know, you're surprised, right? <laughs> like, who knew? Who knew? I was, I was um, a documentary photographer. And so I would go into these communities, indigenous communities in Guatemala and China, and folks are used to seeing white people in their communities. They're used to seeing white Peace Corps volunteers and white photographers and, and folks interloping in their community, but a black person never, never had they seen an African-American woman taking pictures, documenting their experiences in their communities. And so I remember in particular being in a hospital in China and the only, I mean, like no language, we had no language to share, right? But I mean, verbal language. They spoke zero English and I spoke zero Mandarin, but they managed to say Michael Jordan and Oprah Winfrey. Like that was their <laughs> reference. And I was from Chicago. I'd moved here from Chicago. So from there, my operating base was Chicago. So they, they knew Chicago, Michael Jordan, Oprah Winfrey. And I had to either be one of them or related to one of them. And so, but it was, you know, it was kind of cool. I was celebrity everywhere I went. People knew everywhere I went. People knew me. I knew, you know, Oprah Winfrey, Michael Jordan, you know, <laughs> no, no, not me. But what, what, what did happen is I was there to photograph these experiences in the operating rooms, right? But what really happened is I started photographing what was going on around the medical missions because if any of you, who's been to the doctor? Who's been to the doctor lately? Who knows what happens before you see the doctor? You wait, and you wait, and you wait. So there was a lot of waiting. And in that time during waiting, I would snap pictures. 
of what happens there. Love, right? Mothers concerned about children. Brothers and sisters concerned. And that we could relate to. That we can share. I love my brother. You love your brother. It was right when digital, we were going from film cameras. You remember those things that you used to have to go in the dark and put film in and then wind it forward and... And now, you know, it was just on the cusp of digital photography. So as soon as I took a picture, I could show it to them. And they would, me, you know, we had no language to share, but me. And so that camera was my Strawberry Letter 23. And that song led me to a camera, which led me to a career of connecting people through the arts. Now, I don't know if um, taking pictures made a difference in this world at all, but I know it made a difference in me. And it made a difference by connecting people. And again, like I said, it started with a song that led to picking up a camera, that led to becoming a part of a community here of makers and architects and artists and you. Thank you for listening. You are listening to Remarks Made at a November 2017 event entitled Tucson Makers, Inspired by Women, presented by AIGA Arizona on 30 Minutes, 91.3 KXCI Tucson. That was Debbie Chess Maybe. She is the Community Impact Fellow for the UA School of Social and Behavioral Sciences, focused on development of the Dunbar Pavilion. Up next, KXCI Executive Director and Event MC Kathy Rivers We'll introduce Lisa M. Lisa O'Neill. M. O'Neill is a writer, educator, singer-songwriter, and creative usher committed to social justice and moving through the world with authenticity and compassion. Originally from New Orleans, she's lived in Tucson for a decade where she writes into issues of social justice, sustainability, politics, and pop culture through essays, journalistic articles, think pieces, and hybrid forms. Lisa received her MFA in nonfiction writing from the University of Arizona and is currently writing a book on sound and silence. Welcome, Lisa. I'm really honored to be here, so thanks to everybody with AIGA and um, to Borderlands. And I wanna say I was super honored already to be invited, but then when I saw the list of who was participating, I felt even more honored because there are people in the community that I deeply respect and admire. So I really also appreciated the invitation, well, it felt like an invitation to, to think back to um, early connections with art, which um, wasn't something I did in preparation for this, but what flashed back to me was me in my childhood bedroom weeping while reading Where the Red Fern Grows, which I'm sure I'm not the only one who had that experience, but what it made me think about is writing and reading as having the capacity to build empathy and compassion for people that you have uh, shared experience with, but people that you have um, that only the shared experience of being human. And so um, I feel like I connected with language in that way at an early age and with music at an early age because of the capacity for it to hold all of this emotion that I, I felt as a young age and didn't know what to do with. Um, so I am a writer and a writing teacher 
and I also make music. I'm a um, songwriter, and I call myself a creative usher, which is like, I started using that because I don't really like the term for myself of coach or editor, but I like to sort of sit with people and see what stories are important to them and like help them move those through. So what I was gonna talk about today uh, was a little bit about some of the writing that I've done that I feel like is my attempt to engage with um, social change. And I see writing as an opportunity for discourse. Like I said, an opportunity to build empathy and connection with other people. And above me right now is a mural, a beautiful mural of James Baldwin. So imagine that. <laughs> and it says, artists are here to disturb the peace, which is also something that I believe like super profoundly, which is the capacity of art to challenge the status quo and the responsibility of artists to poke at and into um, and challenge what's happening so that we can um, create a culture in a society where all people can thrive. So, um, and then after that, I have a bunch of longer quotes, <laughs> of which I don't remember all of them, but one of them is, um, you can't be neutral on a moving train, which is Howard Zinn, and then um, Fred Rogers, which is something like, you know, Fred Rogers. Yeah, okay, sweater. It is nearly impossible to not love someone once you know their story. So I was gonna talk about a couple of stories that I've worked on in the past uh, few years. One of them is, uh, is this story that I wrote for Bitch Media. It's, it's about the movie Rough Night. Did anybody see the movie Rough Night? Okay, good, good choice, good decision. Uh, anyway, the movie Rough Night was billed as like the female version of uh, The Hangover and also proves that when you drop women into a script made for men, that doesn't work. Um, but that's not what I wrote about. So one of the characters who, in the picture for this article, she's a larger woman, she's a plus-size woman, she's stuffing her face with pizza. What I wanted to say is I write all kinds of things. I write um, journalistic articles, I write more literary essays, I write think pieces, and I write often about pop culture because pop culture to me, it, it provides a spark that then the things that I've been thinking about for years kind of funnel through that. So this is a, was a critique of the movie, but it was also more of a cultural critique of the way that cultural artifacts have the power to reinscribe harmful stereotypes about people, um, particularly people who are marginalized. So we could apply that to any any marginalized group. We could talk about ethnicity, we could talk about class, we could talk about religion, nationality, difference of ability. In this particular case, it was about body size. And as someone who throughout my life has inhabited different bodies, I have also inhabited the experience of being treated differently when I've been in different bodies and feeling differently about myself. And so it's been frustrating to have cultural artifacts continually reinscribe the idea in this movie, she's really annoying. The character is very annoying, needy, and she actually physically kills someone with her body because of her body. So it's like, it's pretty bad. Um, <laughs> that's an understatement, but it's, anyway, I didn't like it. So it was, it was so I, I was so enraged, and sometimes rage is a very helpful tool for creativity, as some of you are aware, all of you are aware. So I went home, and I like wrote this thing, um, and I sent it off to Bitch Media, and they took it, which was like, 
a dream come true for like 21 year old Lisa, like baby feminist who was like, oh my God, this is that. Anyway, so it was so exciting. So that happened. But the thing that was really cool about it is that um, it got a little bit of traction on social media and people kept, people were reaching out to me who were both friends and who were strangers and just saying that it resonated with them. And then there were people that were like, fat people need to lose weight on Twitter, you know, which <clears throat> I never, I try not to read comments because it's not productive use of time. But what I found out about a week after I published the original article was that I got an, an email from the editor saying that it had been featured in the New York Times, uh, what we're reading this week, um, which goes out twice a week. And that was like a huge honor for me because I love the New York Times, I respect the New York Times, and I also felt like I'd hit something, and it was something that was vulnerable for me to write, and usually the things that are the most vulnerable for me to write are the things that are most resonant with other people, so that's like press, publish, you know, send it out, like do the thing because somebody else out there needs to hear it, so I encourage that. And I was going to talk about another piece which was called Cupcake Recovery, which I recently wrote for Edible Baja, Arizona. And that was written about a woman named um, Marielle Montiel, who runs a gluten-free vegan cupcake business in Tucson. And she started it with the mission of not only having her own bakery or baked goods company, but also to provide transitional employment for people who are re-entering um, the community after being incarcerated or after recovery from drug and alcohol addiction. To me, that piece felt like it was in the realm of solutions journalism, which I really appreciate, which is let's not only just point out the problem, let's also look at what people are doing on a macro or micro level. And she's, you know, employs one person at a time, right? But that person is one person that is getting an opportunity to have employment, which is so difficult to do. So that was another responsibility that I took on in the piece, which was to weave in statistics about how difficult it is for people who are reentering to find employment, particularly people who have felonies on the record. So it's a profile, but it's also talking about the larger issue. And then uh, I went home to report on the flooding about a year ago in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which uh, wasn't getting coverage because election and also um, the Olympics were happening. And so I noticed there was just there was just not a lot of coverage. And so I thought I might actually have to help my parents got the second home in a decade, but I didn't have to do that, so I ended up just talking to people and trying to amplify those voices. And then the last piece I was gonna talk about was a piece I wrote called Dear Men Who Wish to Be Allies to Women, and it's a piece that I wrote and published on Medium because I couldn't find, um, I tried, I pitched a couple places and nobody wanted it in that moment. But basically it, that came out of a conversation that I had with a man friend where I felt like we were missing each other when I was trying to talk about the experience of being a woman in this particular instance. And also a little bit of rage, to be honest. But instead of that being directed at my friend, I sat down and wrote this piece that was me being really honest about what I felt like could be helpful in terms of cisgender men being better allies to women. And it's something that I also have learned, or I feel like a, a lot of it mirrors what I've learned as a white person trying to be a better ally to people of color. And so that piece is one that I wanted to mention because it's a piece that has had a lot of traction on social media. Yeah. 
and I noticed that it, it happens at cultural moments when these conversations are happening. So when the Harvey Weinstein um, abuse reports came out and women were um, saying Me Too and talking about experiences with sexual harassment and assault, it started, it started being shared again. And I have a friend who works with men who um, have been previous uh, perpetrators of domestic violence and he said that he's brought it into his groups and I've had a couple of college professors say that they've brought it in um, as, a, as a means of discourse and communication which I think is ultimately why I read is to learn and to kind of grow my understanding of issues and why I write in the hopes that what I have to share might be helpful to someone else. The last thing I want to say is that I'm also really committed to teaching and teaching is part of my writing process. And right now I'm teaching in um, adult and juvenile detention with minors and also at the state prison with minors. It's a real privilege to do this work and I feel like there are a lot of people that are incarcerated that are brilliant artists and writers and thinkers and that have a ton to share with us. So I think figuring out how to facilitate to how to hear those voices of people on the inside on the outs uh, is really important as well. And I think I'll wrap up there. Thank you. We'll have to leave it there. That was writer, editor, educator, and creativity usher Lisa M. O'Neill speaking at a November 2017 event entitled Tucson Makers, Inspired by Women, presented by AIGA Arizona. Additional speakers today included Julie Ray, Kathy Rivers, Leanne Hernandez, and Debbie Chess Maybe. This has been part two of a two-part series. Thank you for listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. You can find this and other recent episodes on the 30 Minutes program page at kxci.org.